Voices are exotic dancers enter one by one Make love to all of your orifices in your seduction Hello and welcome to Ear Seduction. I'm your host, Paul Schilling. Today we finish our two-part series on the El Paso Shooter's Manifesto. I go into great detail on what he said, the validity of his statements, whether he made any true statements, whether he made any false statements, and just the overall characteristics of his logic, his reasoning abilities, and his conclusions. If you recall the first part, I went over what he said in the manifesto, uh, what his main points were, and uh, I didn't provide a lot of analysis or feedback. In this episode, I'm going to focus solely on two things. I'm going to fact check him. I'm going to find out how accurate he is in his claims, and I am going to take his reason and logic head on. I'm going to break down the main thrust of his argument and then take it head on to determine if it is uh, valid, sound, and if his conclusions are therefore correct. So, let's, let's jump right in. So, initially, he describes what he calls an invasion. Now, he's mostly concerned about Texas because that's where he lives, but he's talking about uh, Hispanic immigrants and their role in Texas society and the United States as a whole. So, I wanted to fact check him on that and find out if there's any validity to what he's saying. So, I don't think that there's any way that we could call this an invasion. So, clearly he's uh, being hyperbolic there or he is misunderstood. Or I mean, sorry, he's misunderstanding what's happening. But let's go over some Hispanic population facts. So, the Hispanic population is growing in the U.S. However, the rate of increase has slowed since the 2000s due to lower birth rates and less immigration. So, we're seeing less people of a Hispanic origin coming into the United States. And we're also seeing uh, Spanish-born people of the United States being birthed at lower rates. So, their rates are starting to level out, which is to be expected. Um, The Hispanic population is growing in Texas. It is currently at 40.4% of the population, and Hispanic residents are projected to be the highest population in Texas by 2022. Currently, I believe the Caucasian population is 42%, and then there are some, the rest of the percentages are broken up into other ethnicities or races, however you want to describe that. Here's an interesting note. According to economic researchers, there is no definitive negative impact on the economy, jobs, or wages by immigration. The truth is that our economy is too complex to give any definitive answers in this regard. One thing we can say is that a growth-based economy, i.e. more people, more consumers, more workers, more taxpayers, and more innovation, all positively correlate with increases in immigration and the population as a whole. So, all the indicators that we have tell us that immigration provides a net benefit for the country. Local effects of immigrations do vary, though, and can show decreases in economic growth locally. So, in any one small pocket of the United States, uh, uh, increase in immigration and in, in, of immigrant populations could a negatively could negatively affect the economy or the tax base at first. But generally speaking, they assist in our economic growth and our overall well being. The groups the groups most likely to see decreases in wages are prior immigrants and native high school dropouts. So, people that immigrate here tend to affect the other people that have. 
immigrated here earlier. As nation as nations age and birth rates decline due to higher quality of life, immigration populations tend to increase the workforce, which is widely agreed by economists to help the economy. So, if we look at is there a, a Hispanic invasion into the U.S. and specifically Texas, I think we can say no. I don't think that we could call it an invasion. I will say that we are seeing higher. Um, we're seeing a growth in our Hispanic population here in the United States. We're seeing that they do have high birth rates uh, in comparison to some other groups, although we'll get into that specifically. Um, and they are projected to be the majority in some of our states, Texas being one of them. Uh, does that add any validity to his statement? No. If we recall, Mexico, Texas used to be Mexico. <laughs> so, it, you know, that's something to think about. Uh, we had a war with Mexico and we took Texas from them. Many of the Hispanic population there probably lived there before we waged war on them. So another one of his claims, and I, I jump around a little bit, but uh, I try to stay themed here. And we touched on it already that Hispanics have higher birth rates than the rest of the population on average. This is actually true. Uh, Hispanics have the highest birth rate of any U.S. demographic. However, it is on the decline. His next claim that immigration will make automation issues worse. The automation of jobs will be increased due to the immigrant population. This is a completely unfounded claim and doesn't seem to go with any of the data that I found at all. Automation will likely compete with the jobs traditionally held by immigrant workers. The automation of jobs will not be affected by immigrant populations, however. The issue is between workers in general and automation, not immigrants specifically and automation. The projections indicate that unskilled labor will be most affected by automation and AI, and traditionally immigrants have held unskilled positions. If those jobs are no longer available to any unskilled laborer, that would include any unskilled laborer, then that would include the immigrant population along with a large swath of the United States population, or if you want to call it the... I'm not trying to separate our immigrant population from our non-immigrant population. I'm just saying the whole population of the United States or the United States population as a whole. It stands to reason that less immigrants will come here if there are no jobs for them due to automation. So his concern with automation and he's he claims he kind of jumps back and forth on this issue. So initially he says automation is going to be a bad thing. Then he says automation is going to be a good thing. Uh, he doesn't make it exactly clear as to why. So in his manifesto, he initially discusses automation as a concern and he paints it as a bad thing that it will cause job loss uh, nationwide. And the projections are, are that automation will in fact replace many American or many workers in our economy. He also states that automation will take away... It'll eliminate the need for new replace migrants, excuse me, it'll eliminate the need for new migrants to fill unskilled jobs. So he also sees this trend and believes it to be good because it will take away, it will take away the demand for unskilled labor and therefore migrants will not be able to find work. And so why would they come here? So will immigration make the automation issue worse? I don't see how. And his claim that the automation of jobs will be increased due to the immigrant population, that is completely 
unfounded as well. If anything, the immigrant population will likely be disincentivized by automation to move here as far as moving here for economic reasons. If they're looking for basic human rights, if they're looking to escape bad situations in their home country, I don't see how automation is going to affect that. So at the very least, we can't say for sure how this will affect immigration. We could probably postulate that fewer unskilled positions in our economy would disincentivize immigrants to come here that are looking for unskilled positions. Uh, but people come here for all kinds of reasons. And, of, and other countries have their own problems. And some of some of which are in at a at a some of which are so bad that the that the populations, the native populations want to move to another country to have a better life, whether that be for work reasons or for just personal social reasons, human rights reasons, and so forth. So he claims that as much as half of our jobs will be automated away. I wanted to fact check that statistic that it would be, you know, 40 to 50% of our jobs will be automated away. The truth of the matter is, is it's still unknown how many jobs will be automated and how this will affect the job market and the overall economy. Some forecasters and industry experts have predicted uh, as high as 40% of jobs will be automated by 2035. AI and automation will not just affect low-skilled jobs, uh, but low-skilled jobs are thought to be the most affected. However, many data analysis, data analyst positions, accounting positions, tax preparation positions, and highly skilled jobs like doctors and strategists are likely to be automated as well. We're already seeing that in the medical field, for instance, that uh, IBM's artificial intelligence is the most accurate uh, predictor of lung cancer. And as far as lung cancer is concerned, the AI that they're using to diagnose lung cancer is more accurate than uh, its human counterpart at this point. So his concern and his level of concern about automation does seem to be validated. However, his tying it to the immigrant population is flawed, as we discussed earlier. Uh, We already said that Hispanics do have higher birth rates. Um, In fact, they have the highest birth rate of any U.S. demographic. He claims that Hispanics rely on public welfare systems more than other groups. This is factually inaccurate. So Hispanics represent the second largest welfare group behind African Americans by percentage. But if you're looking at total number of welfare recipients, whites have the highest total number of welfare recipients at 25 million. Hispanics have the second highest at 18 million. So they do not in any way represent the highest they do not in any way rely on our public welfare system more than other groups. If you take it by percentage, they do not. If you take it by total numbers, they do not. Another one of his claims, the UBI or the Universal Basic Income or any government program for that matter, has a greater chance of success with less people in the United States. This is also factually inaccurate. Government programs are funded with tax revenue. All indicators report that increases in population increase the net tax revenue. So this is just a false statement. It is not true that the fewer people we have in the United States, uh, the better success our public programs have or the better chance of success our public programs have. It's to be to be quite frank, it's 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 a more complex issue than he's breaking it out to be. And there's a more complex answer than what I provided. But if you just take generally speaking, a larger pool of people is able to support public programs better than a smaller pool of people. Now, you could say that, you know, a huge pool of unemployed people may not be able to support 
support themselves as far as public in a public program. But generally speaking, the way that our economy works and the way that economies work, more people provides more tax revenue and public programs are paid with tax revenue. Another one of his claims. So Democrats are for open borders. Now we talk about him later and his his use of language. And this is sort of one of those sloppy language statements. We don't know. This is too broad of a statement. But I wanted to get an idea of how they, Democrats versus Republican, view immigration and, and border security. So what I did find was that Democrats are largely divided on exactly what open, what open borders entails. But it's true that Democrats tend to welcome immigrants because of the net benefit to our economy. So the Democrats tend to look at the data. They tend to, to listen to what economists say. And almost all of our indicators show that immigrants, immigrant populations benefit our economy. Um, and that's, that's just taking an economic view. That's not talking about the arts. That's not talking about innovation. That's not talking about the huge increases we see in public benefit of new cultures coming in and us being able to assimilate their, their style, their, their food, and so on. Taking a little bit of the best of each culture is, I think, what makes our culture, the U.S. culture, such a fun culture to live in. I mean, we can get basically any kind of cuisine. That is a huge benefit. And we are able to do that because of our immigrant brothers and sisters that live amongst us and open restaurants and show us and teach us how to be more like them. I think this is a huge advantage that we don't really think about as much as we should. So back to the the question of open borders. Republicans are also divided on immigration largely, but tend to want stricter border policy, especially when it comes to our border with Mexico. So the Republicans seem to be very concerned about the southern border, not so concerned about the Canadian border, and they do they do tend to want stricter border policy. So when he states Democrats are for open borders, that's a little bit too general. But what we could say is that Democrats tend to take the data at face value and say the data shows that immigrant populations provide a net benefit to our economy and our overall quality of life. And so we want more immigrants or we are fine with the immigrant flow that we have or we don't see a need to artificially restrict that flow. Republicans do seem to want to, they don't seem to be as data driven and they seem to want to have stricter border policies for reasons that they drum up. So they claim that these are bad people for some reason or another and they want to keep them out. So another claim that he makes, and sorry, I'm jumping around topics, but he sort of jumped around topics a little. Um, Automation will replace unskilled jobs at a higher rate. This is true by all projections. He does he does have a correct he is correct in in that unskilled jobs will be disproportionately affected by automation. However, this isn't the whole story. Many skilled jobs will also be affected greatly by automation. Think any data analyst position. Um, most data analytics is currently a hybrid of human ingenuity and AI. So that field is already a human AI hybrid field. There's doesn't seem to be any reason why AI wouldn't be able to take over that field in total or to a larger degree. What we what we still don't know yet and what we still get from our unskilled labor force is the ability to build things and manufacture things. It's it's one thing to manufacture a car on an assembly line where each movement can be calculated. It's another thing to build a house or build something out in the elements where things aren't as controlled and calculated. And as of right now, our building force for, let's say, homes and structures and skyscrapers and such are almost entirely man-made. They're almost 
almost entirely done by people. But what we what we don't see is artificial intelligence even hybridizing with humans in this way so far. So, and for some reason, people that build houses are considered unskilled. At least they're not, you know, four-year university type folks. They're apprentices and journeymen. The unskilled labor force, as far as like drivers, drivers of trucks and such, yes, they're going to be hugely affected by artificial intelligence and automation because driving is a very specific skill. And it's also a very controlled skill. There are lines on the highway. There's only certain places that cars can go. Um, But in the unskilled labor force that has to react and measure, you know, measure twice, cut once kind of work, that still seems to be very securely human. All right. So another claim that he makes is by decreasing the number of people on the planet, we give ourselves a better chance of conserving resources. Uh, This is true. This is true. I say it reluctantly because decreasing the number of people on the planet, there's a huge amount... There's a lot of ways to to do that that don't involve murder. So, I'm not trying to support any idea of murder, but it is true that the fewer number of people on the planet generally leads to fewer resources being used. Uh, Another claim that he makes is that the Second Amendment gives us the right to shoot immigrants. The Constitution gives us the right to kill others. Uh, this is false. He he points directly to the Second Amendment as what gives him this right. The Second Amendment doesn't say anything about killing people. Uh, it does say that you have the right to bear arms under a well-regulated militia. So this is just factually inaccurate. The, constant, the Constitution, along with the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights, codifies our human rights, but, but does not give them to us. The Second Amendment says nothing about giving us the right to kill others. The Declaration of Independence specifically acknowledges our right to life and recognizes that our right to ni- that our right to life cannot be taken away. The Bill of the Bill of Rights modifies this slightly to say that our right to life cannot be taken away without due process of law. So, if anything, our founding documents codifies our right to life and specifies that if we are to take a life, if the state is to take a life, that they need to do it under due process of law. I personally disagree with that. But if you're looking to the documents to find a warrant to kill or a license to kill, uh, you're not going to find it. He certainly didn't go through due process with his murder victims. Okay. Another bizarre statement that he makes is that race mixing destroys genetic diversity and creates identity problems. He he kind of throws this in as a, just a, a statement as if it's true and doesn't go into any detail on what he means by genetic, genetic diversity or what identity problems he's referring to, if, if any. So, uh, genetic research suggests that race is largely a social label and that ancestry is more important factor in determining genetic, genetic diversity. To be clear, the African population all considered black by race, are the most genetically diverse group on the planet. Those that are in Africa that never left Africa, that is. Their race doesn't factor into their genetic diversity. Their location and population do. The smaller groups that moved out of Africa 50,000 years ago, roughly, stopped mixing with their African relatives and thus became less genetically diverse. So, because smaller groups of people intermixing are less genetically diverse... Oh, and pardon me. This is because small groups of people that are intermixing become less genetically diverse than larger groups of people. So, by mixing races in our current populations, humans tend to receive a genetic advantage due to the different local genetic adaptations. So, for instance, those groups of people from Southeast Asia that have adapted a genetic resistance to the Zika virus would benefit the groups currently in 
America facing outbreaks of, of Zika if they were to, quote-unquote, race mix. Now, the the uh, groups in America, in the Americas, which would be Central and South America, that are facing Zika outbreaks would hugely benefit if Southeast Asians were to move there. And in the next few generations, we would see a genetic advantage due to increased genetic diversity. So the key to genetic diversity is to interbreed with as large a group as possible from as many different global locations as possible. The smaller the groups and the more local, the less genetically diverse they will become. So this doesn't have to do with race as much as it has to do with populations of people. Identity problems when considering race, as mentioned, are most are mostly socially imposed. So if you live in a group of people that focus on labeling you as a specific race, and if that race is thought of negatively, then you will have a higher potentiality for identity problems. Now, I'm using these words generically sort of because he used these words generically. I don't really know what he's talking about. So I had to do quite a bit of research just to get something to grab onto that made sense in relation to what he was saying. So while our shooter doesn't seem to go into detail of, of exactly what an identity problem is, we can reasonably conclude that any identity problem associated with race is likely due to another racial group creating the problem. In other words, the identity problems between black and white mixed people or people of a person that has one black parent and one white parent, the identity problems that they faced in America are largely due to stereotypes associated with whatever race they happen to look like. So if they have darker skin and curlier hair, they are labeled black. If they are light-skinned with straighter hair, they are labeled white. Any identity problems they face would then be directly related to the people around them and how they view people of different races. So these identity problems are not because of race mixing, as he puts it. They're because of people like him who view other races as in some way problematic. So that's as far as I got into the fact checking. He really goes on and on about a lot of different things and makes a lot of claims without backing any of them up. So I didn't have time to fact check him in in his entirety, uh, nor did I want to take the time. I think as a critical thinker, we can cut a few corners and I'll explain why. I base my sources, my news sources and my information sources on, on how accurate they've been accumu- uh, over a period of time. So for instance, if, if I'm watching Tucker Carlson and I fact check a few of his facts and three out of four of them turn out to be false or sloppy, then I can write Car- Tucker Carlson off as not factual, not somebody I need to pay very close attention to. Now that's not to say that Tucker Carlson isn't going to say something unique or isn't going to make a factual claim. But if I'm looking for factual information, I'm not going to look to Tucker Carlson. Now, let's contrast that with someone like Arn Ra. Arn Ra talks a lot about diversity, genetics, evolution, and cladistics, right? If I want to know about where I came from and what clades I belong to and how diverse I am and so on and so on, I can look to Arn Ra and I I can basically fact check him and he's almost a hundred percent correct. The only ways that I've ever found that he's not correct are that he takes a certain side of an ongoing evolution debate. 
So there's a debate between evolutionists about which clade we belong to, maybe from some 15 or 20 million years ago. He has chosen a side based on certain parameters. He reports that that's which clade we belong to in his YouTube videos. He's not incorrect. He just has picked a side where scientists as a whole haven't decided yet, or there's some kind of controversy. This is something that, as a critical thinker, I hope that we all can start to do. In other words, you as a critical thinker, don't need to watch somebody like Tucker Carlson and then go fact check everything to find out what's right and what's not right, what's correct and what's not correct. You can watch Tucker Carlson, but you have to understand that a large amount, a high percentage of what he says is going to be factually inaccurate. You could spend your time more efficiently listening to somebody else on a similar topic that is more factually correct or that does not take liberties with the truth. I tend to get my information from specific people who are experts on that specific topic. So if I want to learn about evolution, I go to Aaron Ra, I go to Richard Dawkins. If I want to learn about philosophy and critical thought, I go to Matt Dillahunty. I don't go to William Lane Craig, for instance. You can fact check these people initially when I'm... So initially when I'm determining whether or not I should listen to somebody and take, take on board what it is that they're saying, I listen to a few of their lectures or I listen to them talk or I, or I read something that they've written. And I initially fact check some of the things that, you know, are sort of red flags or I wonder, hey, is that true? If they turn out to be correct, then I, I trust them to some degree. Now, I still am going to ask questions and so on, no matter what. But people over the course of their careers, their public careers, tend to, tend to accumulate some kind of pattern in the way that they speak and how reasonable and logical and correct they are. And it's the people that are the most reasonable, the most logical and the most correct that I pay the most attention to. So that's kind of a side note. But um, back to our manifesto. I guess the point of what I was trying to say just now is that so far, our manifesto, our El Paso shooter and his manifesto has not fared well in the initial critical thought exercise that we're doing here. If we read his words, there are a lot of unanswered questions and there are a lot of incorrect facts. Let's get back to my scripted words here. So here are some notes and thoughts I have and here's where I want to take on a few of his... Uh, here's where I want to get into his style and his actual argument and determine if it is factually accurate, uh, which we've already determined it's not, but to further determine its factual accuracy, whether or not it's sound and whether or not it's sound and valid, and then of course whether his conclusion is correct. So his idea of lowering the population through mass murder to quote save unquote the planet and the white race flies in the face of secular humanist morality, our right to life, and his own proclaimed love for Texas, America, and the people therein. So that was just the first thought that came to my mind when I started analyzing him stylistically and his his um, overall argument. So he even recognizes that his choice to murder people flies in the face of the residents of America and his self-proclaimed love for American and uh, for America and the American people. Whether he likes it or not, Hispanic Americans are American. This highlights his tribalism. There isn't a them and us. We're all in this together. 
together to some degree. Uh, so some more of my, my notes here. So our shooter's reasoning and logic abilities are terribly flawed. His conclusions are riddled with non sequiturs and, and prefaced with unsound and invalid arguments. He makes a lot of statements as if they were facts and does nothing to provide any supporting evidence. So due to the multitude of statements made and the time it would take to debunk all of them, I'm just going to focus on two themes. The first being his reasoning style and the last being the validity, soundness, and, and the conclusion of his argument. So as a critical thinker, it's imperative that we all engage with this type of material in order to assess its validity, truthfulness, and logical correctness. Sadly, there is little to work with here as his mind is clearly all over the place and nearing a frenzy. But a few things stand out immediately as red flags as you read his words. These are stylistic red, red flags that we can look for in anyone's presentation of their argument. First and foremost are the statements that he makes without any evidence to support their truthfulness. So just taking one at random, simply stating that race mixing, that's in quotes, destroys genetic diversity as true without any supporting evidence or further explanation is a red flag. This should lead the critical thinker to ask a multitude of questions like, well, how does he know this? There's epistemology right there. Where can I find the facts to support this? And what is our current sci scientific understanding of race as it's related to genetic diversity? This is exactly the pattern and process that I took to determine what he was talking about and whether or not it was true. It turns out it wasn't true. Questions like these need to be answered before any conclusions can be made. He is, in fact, using this as support for his overall conclusion. And if his support is inaccurate or factually incorrect, his conclusion is going to be inaccurate and factually incorrect. Moving on. The second red flag is his use of sloppy language. So sloppy language is used heavily in other arguments, especially religious ones. Um, use of words like the soul or spirit or ghost, as if we have an understanding of what these words mean, should put anyone on their guard. Um, he fails to define many of his words throughout the manifesto. His claim that America is rotting from the inside out is not explained in any detail. This is this is one of the examples of sloppy language. What does he mean? mean by rotting? His manifesto is full of sloppy language like this, and he fails it to explain it to us and make it clear exactly what he exactly to what he is referring. So here the reader is supposed to plug in their own definition. This is a huge red flag. Any sloppy language that you assume you understand what he means without him defining exactly what he means is a red flag that the person that you're talking to is somehow trying to deceive you. So anytime the reader is expected to supply definitions to the writer's argument, you can bet that the argument is false, or at least should be very suspect. Uh, you know, I can say more about this, but sloppy language is, is something that people use all the time. It's very frustrating. That's why most times when you see two people trying to have a, a truthful and reasonable argument, they will start with defining words. And they'll start with that so that they now have an agreement on what this word means. And so that when they construct their logical syllogisms or their argument, that both sides understand what what they're saying when they use words like a ghost or, I mean, you can't define a ghost. We have no idea what a ghost is. We've never tested a ghost. We've never caught a ghost. We've never sampled a ghost. There's been no independent verification of ghosts, so on and so on. But if you're going to use a word like arbitrary, we need to determine exactly what you mean by that word. Okay, so our manifesto is very suspect because of this sloppy language and his reliance on us to plug in our definition for his language. Lastly, he jumps around a lot in his reasoning. He changes topics often and draws on base assumptions that he hasn't
hasn't established as supported by evidence. So, to a logical thinker, critically examining his words, this should put you on your guard. Uh, by introducing a wide array of topics that are based on assumptions that aren't yet clear and not yet established as true, the critical thinker can conclude that the shooter is at worst lying, intentionally trying to deceive you, and at best poorly informed and inarticulate. So, he may just be dumb or naive, um, but he may also be trying to trick you. Uh, the tactic of having a wide array of topics that are just sort of blasted through in a blistering fashion is called the gish gallop and is designed to overwhelm the reader that may or may not have the time or inclination to research and verify the claims being made. It's also a tactic that used in debate, I believe it was coined for a debater, a debater named Gish, uh, that it's widely recognized that one can make a series, let's say a dozen false statements and present that as their case to the other side of the debate. It then takes, and they can do that in a short period of time. So one can present, let's say, a dozen disingenuous or false arguments in a very quick or a very short amount of time. And then the other side has the burden of breaking down all of those points and disproving them, which takes a lot more time. So what ends up happening and why this is used as a tactic is somebody will do a gish gallop. You see this all the time in apologetics. Somebody will do a, a gish gallop and then their interlocutor will attempt to debunk one of, let's say, the five or ten things that the apologist said. Then the apologist can come back and say, well, he didn't answer these other ten questions, so he must be wrong. He didn't even address this, right? So it seems like a fault on the other side, but it is not. It's a specific tactic used to confuse and deflect. Here's the problem is that many people tend to believe that what other people say... Uh, here's the problem. Many people tend to believe what other people say without much verification. This is a mistake. And to I, I, I call upon you, the listener now, to employ... You, I employ you to look at people's arguments and claims in this way to help hone your critical thinking skills. So look for these red flags in the news articles you read, in the pundits, the talking heads that you see on TV and elsewhere. These are huge signs that the person you're listening to is disingenuous or at the very least terribly informed. Okay, so now that we have identified some of the initial red flags in the manifesto, let's take the main thrust of his argument head on to see if it's valid, sound, and therefore correct morally and logically. So his argument boils down to this. White America is currently being, quote, replaced, unquote, systematically by Hispanic immigrants. This replacement is being orchestrated by our government, which is run by corporations. We have many other problems to account for and fix, like the control of our government by corporations, the American life style and its impact on the environment, automation's impact on jobs, and genetic diversity. He then concludes that Hispanic immigrants are the population in America most likely to exacerbate these problems. His solution is to reduce the number of Hispanic immigrants by shooting them, which he claims our constitution gives him the right to do. Okay, so let's break this down critically. Um, it's a little bit hard to do it because he's, as I said before, he, he's sort of all over the board. Um, but as, as I stated in, in the fact-checking section of the podcast, 
podcast, many of his initial statements and beliefs are evident, evidently false. So his replacement conspiracy theory, this this is a conspiracy theory that he has bought into uh, that I described in more detail in the first part of this of, of this series, um, is completely unfounded and therefore not a safe assumption to make as a starting off point. As with any exercise in critical thought, one's assumptions need to be supported by evidence and verified. He cannot do this to support replacement theory and takes it as a given instead. So immediately his first statement and his first sort of supporting evidence for why he did what he did, his first factor in making his decision as to whether or not he should shoot people is not only a, a, a crackpot conspiracy theory, but unfalsifiable and therefore completely useless as far as how as far as decision making. So this is his first mistake, believing in replacement theory. His explanation of our problems, walking through them again, corporate control of the government, our lifestyles impact our lifestyle impacts on environment and automation's eventual impact on jobs are all valid complaints and worth further investigation and understanding. However, he fails to link any of these problems to the Hispanic community using evidence. According to the shooter's own words, the Hispanic population are acting just as the whites are in relation to these problems, or are victims of them just as much as the whites. He's not saying it's Hispanic corporations that are controlling our government, say from Colombia, nor is he saying that Hispanics are doing anything to further the progress of our economy towards automation. He's not linking those two things together. In his narrative, they're victims to these changes just the same as everybody else. The one point he makes that has some validity is how the American lifestyle affects the planet and its destruction. So he states that Hispanics are going to be the most likely to cause this destruction as they assimilate into our American culture and consume at the same level as the whites. Here he identifies his bias. So he's willing to let the whites destroy the country's resources, but he draws an arbitrary line with the Hispanics. He falsely sees them as not of European descent, when in fact they are of European descent. The reason they speak Spanish is because Spain, people from Spain, which is in Europe, settled in Central and South America and in Mexico. Anyway, so he falsely sees them as not of European descent and singles them out as particularly bad actors. Instead of addressing the issue of overconsumption directly, he labels it as Hispanic overconsumption. Now, I took a little bit of liberty there. He didn't say Hispanic overconsumption, but he is singling out Hispanics as bad actors and the most likely to exacerbate this issue. So I'm going to call that Hispanic overconsumption. He does not seem, although he does call out his fellow whites and and I guess what he calls like Native Americans. I mean, they're not, but who he considers to be true Americans. He does call them out as not be, being willing to change their lifestyles to save the planet, but then decides that he cannot shoot them. Instead, he can shoot the Hispanics. So he just creates this arbitrary line. He's not addressing the issue. This bias demonstrates his racism, a racism that he denies in his manifesto, rather offhandedly near the end. And anytime a bias is is demonstrated or just blatantly blurted out, this should put any reader on alert that his conclusions are more likely to be wrong than they are to be correct. So his conclusion is to kill Hispanics. Since this problem, since these problems are neither related to Hispanics directly nor exclusive to Hispanics and not supported by evidence, to kill them doesn't seem to address the issues he's identified. So the only issue that he that can be linked to Hispanics directly is 
is the issue of overconsumption. But as I pointed out, this is something that every American does. This isn't a Hispanic issue. It's an American issue. It's not possible to ascertain who the overconsumers are based on their race or excuse me. It's not possible to ascertain who the overconsumers are based on their race or ethnicity. So singling out Hispanics fails to address his concern with the environmental issues that we face. Even if we grant that the best way to save the planet is for everybody to consume less, we still can't get to mass murder as the solution. So mass murder would be just one of many possible potential solutions. One that raises more questions than it answers. And it seems to me that mass murder is a solution that we would not implement because of its moral implications and the access we have to other alternatives that would be far better for the planet and humanity. Would we really be willing to throw away our humanity just to ensure that the survivors are able to consume at existing levels? Would we be willing to cause the kind of mass suffering that mass murder creates? Would we even want to exist in a world where we were responsible for such an atrocity? No morally normal person would even consider this as an option. Also, this conclusion is a non sequitur. That is to say that it doesn't follow logically from his premises. Why not address corporate influence on politics directly? Why not lower consumption of fossil fuels by investing in renewable energy? Why not invest in education to help people secure their future when AI and automation start to change our economy? Lastly, why not invest in the third world to bring them up to the living standards we enjoy, thereby lowering their birth rates naturally? This would address the consumption issue directly, lower the earth the Earth's population without killing anyone. In fact, if you go out and research how we are going to address the Earth's overpopulation issue, which I do believe is an, is an issue, um, there are a multitude of ways we could do this without murdering anybody. There are many options for solving these issues that he brings up. It's just really too bad that he didn't explore any of them. So lastly, I want to address the moral implications of his conclusion, which is I think where most of us want to go with this, right? I mean, we feel that what he did was wrong because we feel it. It's in our it's in our bones, right? Well, moral intuition is one thing, but it is supported uh, by evidence generally and can be traced back to our evolutionary history. So let's take a look at what he's saying and the moral implications of his actions. So if we were to grant him all of his points as true, we still wouldn't be correct to murder Hispanics. So here's why, right? Murder flies in the face of our unalienable right to life. It is an offense to our humanity, our human solidarity, and it can be demonstrated to be incorrect. You might be wondering how I can demonstrate that murder is incorrect, a false conclusion, or immoral. Well, one only needs to look to the evidence and then assess the wishes of the victim. So, if the victim didn't want to die, then we can rightfully call it murder. And that's in that's across the board. Any person that doesn't want to die who is then killed has been murdered in the same way that any person that doesn't want to be penetrated and then is can be said to have been raped. Once a victim is established, then and we can all observe the objective evidence for ourselves to verify its validity. So, in the case of mass murder, we can look at the evidence of all the dead bodies, the bullet wounds, the cardiovascular trauma, and the lifelessness of the body. Furthermore, we can assume that based on our previous understanding of pain, that these victims likely suffered immensely. This is yet more evidence of immoral behavior. Lastly, we can assess the trauma, pain, and suffering experienced by the survivors. Not just the survivors of the attack itself, but those mothers and brothers and children 
children of those slain. All of this evidence supports our right to life and its moral validity. What else could? So clearly, we can support the immorality of this action with the evidence of past actions that were similar, uh, with the evidence of the act that he actually took, the killings that he committed, the mass murder that he committed, and we can invalidate his conclusion as not only being incorrect in truth, but also immoral and incorrect. So I kind of wanted to leave it at that. I'm trying to spare us some time. It's going to take me a while to edit this video and it's already getting late. So I want to thank you for listening. I hope that breaking this manifesto down and exposing it uh, for the lies and deceit and invalid, unsound, and incorrect argument that it is. Uh, I do think it's important that we wrestle with these types of arguments. This is out there in the world. People believe this stuff. People think that this is logical and reasonable. And this person thought that it was a jumping off point to commit mass murder. Now, we have to combat these ideas if we want to stop mass murder. We have to put the social pressure on people like this to assimilate to our culture. That is the culture of moral, morally normal people who value evidence, who value humanity, who take secular humanism to heart. We're not the psychopaths, but somehow we have to convince the psychopaths to, to join us, to, to, to not be psychopaths, right? So far, we don't have any kind of cure for this kind of mental uh, disease. And I'm not convinced that this person was a psychopath, but something has to be done. We have to do something to keep these people in check to welcome them into our communities, to assimilate them with the diversity that we see in our country. This type of person, the El Paso shooter, complains that Hispanics are going to change our culture. And what he's really saying is, is that he's not willing to assimilate to the changes that are just going to happen. It, it's not like anybody's orchestrating these changes. This is just the way the world changes. People move. People seek out what they want. And many people seek out the United States to be their home because they think it is the best place to live or they think it's their best option. I tend to agree with them on many accounts, but it's people like this, the El Paso shooter, that will not assimilate to this American culture that we live in. He's claiming he's got his own culture and that it's under threat. And if he's talking about a psychopath culture who worships guns and President Trump and is willing to go out and murder flying in the face of humanity as he did, then I guess, yeah, we are, we are, he is under assault. We are out there to stop him, uh, but, but not in the same way that he's assaulting us. I'm looking to interact with these kinds of ideas and bring these types of people over to our side so that they can understand and take on board secular humanism so that they can see that the right to life is something that everybody has and that to commit an assault like this is an assault on humanity. It's an assault on society and societal strength. I guess that's all I have to say about it. Okay, so a lot was said. Some things were correct, right? We are probably overpopulating the world in some sense. It's not that easy. It's not that cut and dry. And it certainly isn't a, a, a license to kill. But that is a concern that we should probably have. How to solve that problem isn't really addressed. I want to say one thing that occurred to me as I was re-listening to this audio that I didn't quite say. And that's, please notice how murder, mass murder, does not address the birth rate, for instance. It doesn't do anything to address Hispanic birth rate, which is something that the El Paso shooter is very preoccupied 
preoccupied with. He's very uncomfortable with how many babies Hispanic people are having. Murdering a couple of Hispanic people in a Walmart doesn't really address that, does it? Do you know what the evidence suggests if we're concerned with birth rate? Do you know what the evidence suggests that we should do? It's that we should, as rapidly as possible, increase the quality of life to every single community that we can. Because higher birth rates are generally associated and correlated with poverty. They're also correlated with not having access to education and specifically not having access to education about contraception. In other words, what would an actual solution to Hispanic birth rates be if we were in fact worried about Hispanic birth rates? I personally am not terribly concerned with Hispanic birth rates, but just for the sake of this discussion, let's say that I am. Let's say that we don't have as much room as we did. Let's say it's, a you know, 500 years down the road and birth rates are still, you know, now it's like, oh boy, we're really full. The earth is full. A lot of folks, uh, we need to start addressing birth rates. There's actual reason to. What would be the solution? Well, clearly the evidence supports education edu and more specifically, I mean, education in general, but more specifically education in contraception and sex education. And then also investment in poverty. And I don't mean investment to increase poverty. I mean, investment in curing poverty, investment in communities that raise them up out of poverty, investment in technology. <laughs> so he, he just misses the mark so thoroughly here. And I, I just don't know that I said that in quite in that way. And I wanted to. We really do have problems on this earth. And a lot of them are oriented around people. And some of them are oriented around different groups of people. Some of those groups are purposefully those people. Like they, they in other words, they did it to themselves or, or for, like I'm thinking here specifically of, of let's say the manifesto, the, the El Paso shooter, right? He was indoctrinated, but he also indoctrinated himself. He has some responsibility for the group that he's in. And the group of folks that think it's okay to murder people and, and want to commit mass murder, we need to worry about them. We need to figure out what to do with them and how to engage with them so that they don't commit mass murder. But then there's other groups that find themselves in a bad situation that negatively affect themselves and everybody around them and the whole planet. And we need to understand how to address them too. So being worried about what's happening in the world and the people therein is a real issue. How this guy, how this person, the, the El Paso shooter, how he got so far off base is, is really codified in this document and should should be a roadmap for us on how to avoid all of this, right? I mean, don't get involved in conspiracy theories under any circumstances, any conspiracy theory, right? I mean, just don't get involved in them. They're, they're just a roadmap for failure, for mental collapse, and for essentially going crazy. Now, I mean, I can read the El Paso shooter and see that. I can also see that in my daily life. I'm going to have a whole series about conspiracy theories and how it ruined my personal friendships with people. Long, wonderful friendships. The kind of friendships that everybody wishes they had, gone, ruined, because of self-indoctrination into Alex Jones and QAnon and Trump gone. <laughs> never to return. It's over and it's never going to come back. What a tragedy. What a, what a shame. There's so much to learn from this manifesto in how not to behave, in how not to think, in how you need to ground your, your understanding in reality, how you need to construct your logical syllogisms based on evidence, based on science, based on the truth of the matter. As I said before, if you're preoccupied with race, you're essentially scientifically illiterate. There is no such thing scientifically 
specifically as race, other than minute allele frequency differentiation. The same kind of allele frequency differentiation we see with people's height difference, the color of their eyes, and so on. There's just humanity comprised currently of Homo sapien. Now, it used to be Homo, homo neanderthal, <laughs> neanderthalus. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, these are hard words. <laughs> homo erectus, Homo heidelbergensis, Homo florensiensis, right? And probably even species that weren't of the genus Homo, we would still consider human. We may even be right in considering chimpanzees and bonobos human. There is a scientific reasoning for that. Now, what does the understanding of science do in this case? It opens up the doors of humanity. It opens up the barriers that we that we grant each other, human rights barriers to be specific. So a bonobo has a right to life in the same way that I do. Homo neanderthalus certainly would have. Homo neanderthalus was essentially me in, in most instances. There's, there's only, I believe, and I, I could be wrong, but there's something like six clades of differentiation between me and a chimpanzee. If you don't know what I just said, then you need to go and learn about evolution and specifically about cladistics. We're going to talk about that more in great detail on this podcast because I want you to know those things. I think it's essential for your humanity. Now, I feel like I'm going on a little bit here and that's okay. It's my show. But thank you for listening. I hope that you got something beneficial out of this. Hopefully you learned something about how to critically analyze these types of texts, how to understand people like this, and what you might do for the future to avoid this type of behavior and this type of thought, these types of thoughts. Um, if you have something you'd like to say to me, please do. Please contact me at earseductionpodcast at gmail.com. I'm very interested in engaging with you. Thank you very much. This has been Ear Seduction. Yes, I'm